This is Thomas DePolo. This is Max. This is Kevin Ham. Hi, this is William Roy. I'm Jake, and this is the Green Box. On this episode, we have a segment on special operators, what they're good for, how to build them, how to play them, some drawbacks, as well as some inspiration for the sort of trouble that they get into in reality. We also pull the intense white light down right into your face and talk about interrogations and how to roleplay them without feeling like the handler's being tortured in real life. Alright, so for today's topic, I thought that we would bring up one of the other more popular profession types and just kind of talk about it a little bit. I'm talking about special operators. What do you guys think about special operators in Delta Green, that is? They are pretty good because the thing that I like about special operators, along with federal agents and criminals, is that they have a skill package that contains all of your like basic survival shit, which means that you can spend the bonus points on anything you want. So you will, you can have a special operator and, and you don't need to spend your points on you know firearms or alertness or athletics or any of that stuff because you already get that stuff with the character class. So you can buy all the weird exotic shit like anthropology or you know craft electronics or computer science or other stuff that you wouldn't normally um, consider. Right. How do you justify that though with like a Navy SEAL with uh, anthropology school or uh, Army Ranger that also knows how to speak? Uh, well, I take that back. I guess Army Rangers might have a tendency to know like a different foreign language or something. But I justify it because if you want to develop life path character creation for Delta Green that only, that ensures that people only have skills that are realistic for them to have, then please do. I've always thought that life path character creation would be a lot of fun. See, that uh, kind of buys into the thing I do when I create characters. I tend to take the bonus skill point packages that kind of correspond with like what they already do. So they're just like super beefy at it, which is actually really good to do for special operators because then you get like multiple things at like 60, 70, 80%. Which... You already kind of start that way with a special operator. Like you've got a bunch of skills at 50 and up. Yeah, which is really good. That uh, buys into what Melon says about them being able to survive. And like um, almost all the skills that they get just like as a baseline are ones that you're going to be rolling frequently. So it's good to have them up that high. Talking about firearms, first aid, athletics, you know, the ones that like when it's do or die time and you roll the dice, like it's good to have more points on your side. But it just feels weird to me to have, you know, the anthropology or those other skill points uh, with the special operators because I always kind of tend to think of them as just like, you know, meatheads point directly at the problem and uh, they'll apply firearms to make it go away, that type, that type of deal. Well, it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, consider a lot of the the big important characters in the Delta Green canon are, you know, like special forces guys who got out and then became like professors of archaeology at Miskatonic University. Consider the old man, for instance. Oh, Joseph Camp. Yeah, that's right. Because he was like uh, the Secret Service OSS spy type, right? And then he went on to do uh, librarian. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay, I guess I could see it. Then with that explanation, that makes more sense. One of the problems I had with them at first is that most of them only start with two bonds, or if you dip into the back of the agent's handbook, you get the specific agency ones, and a lot of them only have one bonds. Um, that's kind of bad for like long-term mental health character survival. If you start Almost. adapting to violence, though, you're cutting like half of your incoming sand damage. 
It's true, especially when you play someone who's pretty good at killing. Almost kind of says something, doesn't it? The thing about the special operator is that it's a good to have. Um, it's good to have like one of those people in your team because I've been in Delta Green operations where the answer was clearly violence. Like that's what the handler wanted us to do, but no one on the team was capable of it. So they had to basically we would, we would just refuse to do anything until they kind of like engineered the situations so that we had an alternative. Because there is cases where if you don't know how to shoot a heavy machine gun or throw a grenade or whatever there's challenges that you just can't overcome in some of the stuff. And maybe that's a scenario design problem, but I mean, there's published L3 green modules that go a lot easier. If you have a guy with a gun who knows how to use it, uh, like um, having played uh, lover in the ice with a group that had special, like a lot of people with, you know, 50 plus firearms that, and, and an excuse to carry a gun around that adventure is uh, very different than if you play like a group of normal people. I, I've been toying around the idea of writing scenarios where players come at it with two agents. Like you have the investigative type and then you have like the break shit type. Um, and that, that tends to work because like, why would when presented with other options, why would like the anthropologist or a librarian or scientist, why would they press on and go into a dangerous circumstance when they could like call their handler and be like, Hey man, I'm not beefy enough for this. Get someone with a gun over here. Come on. Like, if you're feeling uh, benevolent as a handler to allow players to do something like that, I think that could be pretty fun whoa, set up. Whoa, 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 whoa. If you're feeling what? Sorry? Benevolent, you well, know. What's not that hating your Not hating your players. Not wanting to uh, chalk another uh, tally mark up on the wall for agents that you've killed. I don't understand what that means. Uh, it means that you don't need to kill your players because there's no reason to do for them what they can do for themselves. It's true. You should let them die because of, of their own decisions and consequences as uh, Kevin is very wont to remind us all the time. Special operating, one thing that you can do with it is you can have a mission that beforehand you say this mission is going to be um, a dangerous shooting mission. There's going to be lots of stealth and firearms and heavy weapons and so on. So bring a character that can survive in that environment. And then you don't have to deal with this problem of, you know, the scenario has a lot of fighting in it, and what happens if someone brings a computer science? Well, they if they're lucky, they they hide in a corner. If they're not lucky, they get shot in the first round. That's good for like our open table style of play. But uh, what about like campaign style play? I think there was someone on the Delta Green Street Team Facebook page who was talking about something similar, and this might be where you're getting the idea from, Jake, where he yeah, said for his uh, campaign. I think it was. Chris Cooper, maybe. Yeah, I think it was. We can go back and find the link if we need to. He was saying his campaign, the players had two sets of characters. One that was where everyone was much more bookish, and their purpose was to go and identify threats and locate them. And then they would swap over to their special operations team characters who would go in and actually blow it up. And I think that could be pretty fun, especially like if you're doing a long-term campaign style. This is a good way to avoid devaluing either character type, that everybody can uh, can be more investigative without any risk or with a certain security that they're not going to have to fight anything right at the end, that there will come a point where they can just swap off and say, okay, I'm going to call up my buddy with the... 40 millimeter grenade launcher and let him handle it from here take the 40 millimeter retirement plan because he's going to blow up another player probably <laughs> there you go or your buddy who 
flies the Apache chopper. And so it becomes the Hellfire missile retirement plan. You know, that style of uh, having two characters that actually be pretty good because mm, one of my friends who I play RPGs with pretty frequently doesn't like playing Delta Green because his characters keep dying off. He thinks it's like an unwinnable game or whatever, but he just keeps making like really, really dumb decisions for like the, the players uh, for the um, professions that he's picking. Like he tried to play like a paleontologist one time and that's that's pretty cool. But then uh, he tried to do like sneaky, sneaky, shooty stuff. And then he was surprised when he died in a shootout. So when you have uh, like that sort of split dichotomy and that that security of uh, having a, a character who's adept at that sort of stuff, it could really kind of change some people's perspectives on uh, on the game. Maybe bring back some players who were turned off because of character death. Yeah, for sure. Because that's something we mentioned is that it's really frustrating to play more egghead types like the anthropologist, etc. Because inevitably you may just find yourself in a situation where you need to roll firearms a bunch. But that's also a little frustrating for someone who wants to play the special operator is if it's just a lot of puzzle solving and investigation and you signed up to shoot monsters and there's nary a monster to be shot. I've had I've had both cases. I've had I've had cases where I brought like a really kind of technical specialized character and had absolutely nothing to do because the scenario was all rolling firearms. And I've had cases where I brought the special operator and then waited patiently while one guy rolled computer science the whole time. And the interesting thing though with that is that uh, that might actually be harder to get around in a campaign setting because. Um, it's not something where you can necessarily like control, okay, here's what this mission is about specifically, because it's driven by the actions of the players and them choosing what they would like what course of action they'd like to pursue. So in essence, it's sometimes like, you know, self-inflicted if they're gonna if they're gonna pick a plan that has uh, a lot of one thing and not a whole lot of another. And so, yeah, I think that it, that might be why like allowing people to have the uh, a kill team and then a regular team, might be helpful and it's it's supported by the it's supported by the descriptive text and the handler's guide which i think that information should be given to the players the information that um according to the handler's guide in setting um the majority of agents are special operators and federal agents and everyone else is a specialist that's brought in on a case-by-case basis to assess situations or provide specialized technical knowledge so it's almost the reverse of what we've been talking about in essence rather than um rather than a squad of eggheads that are supported by uh, a legion of gun-toting badasses. It's more like a hardcore of people who can protect themselves that occasionally drag a nerd along with them. Which could be fun to play VIP, you know, keep them alive because they have the knowledge, right? It's fun, but then the problem becomes... um, I play a video game called Rising Storm 2, and in Rising Storm 2, the VIP is called the Squad Leader, and the Squad Leader's special power, at least if you're playing as the South, so the, you know, Americans, Australians, South Vietnamese is that um, people can respawn on your location if you're still alive. But what that means then is that there's an enormous pressure on you to not actually go and play the game. Your optimal strategy is to go as close to the front line as possible and then hide in a bush or under a rock. And so that that way your teammates can spawn on you, run into the battle, play the game, and then rinse and repeat. But if you expose yourself to danger, you're letting the team down. So you're not allowed to have fun. And so I wanted... that that's That's my issue with VIP type games and with the one guy being the the defenseless nerd is that it encourages that person to adopt a very conservative style of play that doesn't allow them to go and do crazy stupid fun things did i ever tell you about the time i played um vip in insurgency 
There yeah. was there was this one guy who, uh, well, when you play as the VIP in Insurgency, you get just a pistol to uh, defend yourself with, and like all your other teammates have, you know, regular guns that they bought and all that. But um, the guy got chosen as a VIP, and he started like role playing in the middle of this first person shooter game. He's like, oh my god, I'm not gonna make yeah, it. Um, yeah. You ever watch those old uh, Shack Tag videos of the? of them playing like dark business where they try to do like a prisoner exchange. And one of the guys plays the prisoner is a lot like that, where if you actually get into the, the whole, um, if you, if you, if you get into it, then it can be fun. Even if, uh, the actual role is just kind of being defenseless. And, he was, uh, he was like crying and he was like yeah. refusing to move forward. And we had to convince him, all right, well, look, man, get on your belly and crawl to the next obstacle. And like SWAT four had a mode like that. And the cool thing about SWAT four was that, um, rather than being, Rather than being the objective being to kill the VIP, the, the terrorists had to capture them and then hold them captive for a certain amount of time. And so it meant that, you know, you weren't just going to get mulched by four guys with automatic rifles. They had to go through the effort of, you know, throwing a stun grenade or tasing you or whatever. And then while they were doing that, they could get zapped. And then, you know, they would they would they would be real dicks. So if someone was if they, if they captured the VIP, they would handcuff the guy and then they would like tase him and pepper spray him and stuff. But then while they were doing that, the, um, the police would counterattack and shoot him. <laughs> That's, that just sounds like a lot of fun, man. Oh, they, oh, it was great. So that, that, that game had a great, uh, mechanic. And this will be, I'm probably, this will be the end of video games. Um, this game had a great mechanic where you had, you could arrest people in the multiplayer mode. So if you shot someone with a non-lethal weapon, they would be stunned. You could capture them. But then what would happen is, uh, I might have told this story already. So someone would like throw a non-lethal grenade, so like a stinger or a gas grenade or a flashbang. And so it would stun everyone in a room. And then the guy would come in and try to arrest them. And then someone from the other side would throw a grenade into the room and stun him and also stun everyone else who was already stunned. So you'd just be stun locked, crawling around on the ground, coughing blind and um, bleeding from multiple rubber bullet wounds as the room just filled up with people trying to arrest you and, all, and trying to arrest your enemies. It was a... <laughs> It's like three-dimensional chess. One thing that that we we run into a lot is this tension between um, how should we handle uh, gear in the game? Because I think the basic tension in my mind as a handler is I want is is I like the um, I like things like like the tools of the trade or whatever because it means that the players don't have to go shopping. It means that I don't have to explain the acquisition rules over and over again for each piece of gear that they buy. So they don't say, how do I acquire a Kevlar vest? How do I acquire a carbine? How do I acquire a pistol? How do I acquire a first aid kit? I don't have to do that over and over again. I can just say, take a look at this sheet, and that's what you have. On the other hand, use people who are given all of this hardware as their duty weapon and not enforced any consequences on it are much more likely to go out and just solve the scenario by shooting everybody. And you guys know that at Gen Con, the pick rate was highest for the characters that had the most uh, equipment with them. It's true, but those were also the ones that died the most. Yeah, well, that's that's good because that means that you're enforcing consequences for their actions. But I well, think he wants to fight. Give him a fight. Generally, that um, I always look for a way to make it so that the players feel like they can actually go and play the scenario, and they don't have to to think about you know what equipment do I want to bring, while at the same time not just allowing them to be very cavalier to say, well, I'm a special operator, so obviously I can get a machine gun with no consequences. So. In reality, it's a lot harder to sign your equipment out of the unit armory because there's someone else that's responsible for that shit that you have to sign it away from. So um, I don't know. There's just like a certain line you need to kind of draw there because there there absolutely should be consequences because Delta Green's a game about consequences. 
But uh, I don't know. What do you guys think? Where's the line? Like, what should you allow them to take? Should you make them like roll stealth to sneak in and break it, or persuade to convince the uh, sergeant in arms to uh, send it out to you, or what? My thing when I think about this is I don't know if I would even make it that difficult to get the stuff or acquire it. My thing would be so you've used it. How do you cover up the fact that you've used uh, legally owned military gear in a blacker than black ops mission on U.S. soil? When the cops find out and they somehow track your rifle back to you, back to the U.S. military, that's going to come down hard on you. Can I suggest why I like that as an idea? Basically, it, it is um, symmetrical suspension of disbelief for the purposes of gameplay. Because in real life, I think well, basically the way it works is you can't get the weapon out, but also if you kill someone with a gun, police your brass, take precautions, you're not they're not going to match that weapon. They're not going to know it was used in that shooting. But you're saying, rather than doing that and say you just can't do it, let's make both sides, uh, let's bend the rules on both sides. Let's say you can get the weapon, but you will be caught. So it's it's breaking the rules both to the player's advantage, but also to the disadvantage for the purpose of creating a more dramatically interesting situation. Right. My feeling is kind of that if you don't let the special operator have that gear, then there's not a whole lot they can do because the player who picks the special operator wants to be the shooty blowing stuff up guy. So if you say, no, you can't have guns, no, you can't have explosives, that's just not fun for that player. But at the same time, the way I see it is it encourages you to bring along someone who's a little bit more forensically, criminologically inclined, someone who can hide everything you've done after you've done your bit. The hard part's not getting out. The hard part's putting it back. Uh, and the sergeant in arms notices just how dirty it is. So he starts running the security tapes back and uh, finds that you went back into the armory with the rifle. How the hell did you get it out in the first place? Or, you know, uh, in the case of grenades, those are accounted for. Grenades are serialized. They went missing. Like yeah. that. Uh, consequence enforcement is something that I need to do more as a handler. But it's just so hard at the end of a scenario to account for everything that got used. Right. You have to be taking notes on like, okay, you know, where, what what is it that the that all the players have done that is forensically linkable to them? You know, who knows their name? who's seen their real ID, who has recorded them, what weapons have they expended that they took, that they drew from the unit armory versus what was their personal possessions, et cetera, and so on. I think in older Delta Green scenarios, this is partially the reason why the players are often working in close concert with law enforcement, whether it's other government agents like the FBI or local law enforcement is collaborating with them on a case because then there's always a chance someone they've been introduced to at the start of the scenario will catch them in the act rather than kind of following up on it at the very end. Yeah, it's much easier from a perspective of, you know, what consequences should I inflict? It's much easier to have stuff happen during the game than try and think of, okay, afterwards, what could the police find out based on my memory of how the agents performed this adventure? No, another fun thing you could kind of trip special operators up on not that this is a game of gotcha or anything like that but um uh you talked about them working with federal agents or whatever the posse comitatus act is something that prohibits the united states military from operating on u.s soil so um if a special operator is kind of caught extrajudicially doing stuff around they could be subject to the uniform code of military justice you know uh being held accountable like in trial this could 
uh, for that the prosecution rules and all that as well. And that's that's essentially the source of the concept of sheep dipping, right? That the CIA operators or military operators will sometimes go around with falsified FBI credentials and they'll pass at first muster, but maybe not so much under sustained investigation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, deputization is another thing that uh, could be utilized, but it's only going to go so far for you. Right. Um, so we talked a little bit about um, what special operators can do with their skill sets, and we talked a little bit about um, how they can do it with their equipment. But what about how how would you guys portray special operators? Because I talked a little bit about how I tend to think of them as like the meathead types, melon suggested having them be adapted to violence basically soaks up half of the sanity damage that would otherwise make them kind of hard to play. But what about um, other disorders or adaptations? How Would you guys flavor any of the adaptations a special way? My rules is written adaptations or damage veteran packages uh, are supposed to necessarily imply that your character is a Delta Green um, veteran. Right. So would you do that on top of, uh, of things or... Because um, I, I I get that they they're agents that means they get a damage veteran package, but I don't know. Uh, it seems like those are pretty ripe for flavoring based on like what uh, experience that they might have gone through to get to that point. All right, Tom, what, Tom, what did you think? Uh, I do think there's a lot of interesting flavor you can get out of the various uh, damage vets packages. I think that. Adapted to helplessness instead of being something like imprisonment or captivity could be something like you came back from war and now you're trying to live as a civilian, but you're not getting support for a disability or you can't find a job for a prolonged period of time. You got your wife fucking your dad. Jody's in your bed. Is this a reference I'm not getting? I said you caught your wife fucking your dad. I, I understood the individual words. It's just... I feel like some kind of info is, hazard is, is that, blocking the flow is that, total um, in my is mind. Is that a helplessness sand test? Yes, I think I'm rolling for it right now. You're saying helplessness is uh, being at the VA and not being able to get what you need done, so your back just hurts all the time. Yes. Yeah, people are just bullshitting you and keep telling you, oh, any day now, that that's when we'll get you the help you need, and it just never comes. You need to fill out this form in order to get access to this treatment. And that treatment actually requires that form. So you did it wrong. So start all over. And the doctor you're trying to see isn't available on the day that they scheduled you there. So you'll have to try again in six months. Yeah. I was actually thinking this would be a hard one to kind of Delta Greenify. Like, how does this, how does not being able to get a doctor's appointment from the VA help you get into Delta Green, but it might be like you were cursed somehow or a lingering injury from a monster that modern medical science can't actually diagnose. So when you go to see the doctor, there's nothing they can do to help you, but Delta Green steps in. There's also uh, there was also a long story at The Intercept about SEAL Team 6 and how operators with them were committing war crimes, essentially, like defiling the bodies of enemy combatants. And a lot of that was kind of swept under the rug. Is, is defiling an enemy's body a war crime? Yeah, there's a lot of things that are a war crime. And uh, I feel like that, that, cheap, that cheapens the concept of a war crime. 
like I don't know, man. Like, I don't want to. I don't want to like let the let the corpse desec- desecrators off the hook. But I just feel like you know maybe the guy who uses chemical weapons is worse, or you know the guy who tortures people is worse than the guy who you know cuts the ear off a corpse. Like I feel like there should be a hierarchy of these things. Well, I think torture and the execution of combatants who had already surrendered was also in there. Yeah, that's that's what I've kind of figured. Because because when you say cutting um, mutilation of corpses. Uh, trophy taking is usually something that happens after you've done something also illegal. Like uh, there was a some blood meridian shit in Afghanistan where I don't think it was special operators. I think it was just a um, a bunch of regular old grunts were uh, going around shooting farmers and cutting fingers off them. Which uh, you know, if you want to kind of make light of the gruesomeness or that tragedy, you could easily turn that into some ritual shit for Delta Green, right? How did our playtest of Iconoclasts go? How many war crimes did we commit? I don't know how many we committed. I just remembered you I think repeatedly we urging stopped us. you from committing any. Yes, you you repeatedly urging us to round up as many ISIS as we could, put them in one big area, sacrifice them so that we could draw the biggest elder sign. Realistically, how many how many captured fighters? When you guys complained that that was a war crime, I said I'll give them all weapons before I do it. They won't be unarmed just, prisoners. They will be enemy combatants, and I will be defending myself when I sacrifice a hundred power worth of people to make the elder sign. Spoken like someone who's adapted to violence. It's perfect. This is exactly what we're talking about. This is the about. problem with special operators: is that the special operator mentality of adapted to violence. I don't give a shit about this. Is kind of just how a lot of people play RPGs already. It's like the D and D mentality of I've got a sword that does two d ten damage. This guy has ten health, and he's in my way. Just murder hoboism. Yeah, I do think that's a slight problem, I guess, is that adapted to violence is really mechanically beneficial for a special operator. Even what I was going to go on with the war crimes thing was you could use that as an excuse for a hard experience package, and that would drive a wedge between you and maybe your old military unit. But at the same time, if you're a special operator, you start with so few bonds, you probably don't want to sacrifice one of those. Tom, uh, how how would you justify hard experience in that case? Why, why would the war crimes make the hard experience? Either you reported someone in your unit for doing these things who maybe was already a Delta Green agent and you got brought in that way, or you yourself, if you want to go a little edgy with it, you yourself committed something that looked from the outside like a war crime, but in your mind it was totally okay because they weren't really human in the first place. I would also say um, in relation to the war crimes, maybe it wasn't your agent that did it. Maybe your agent witnessed it and you started to snitch. And midway through the snitching process, Delta Green came to you and said, whoa, 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 that's not really what was going on there because, you know, it was some sort of like a ritual. So then, you know, in exchange for you keeping your mouth shut, they also kind of bring you in to work for them. I think that Delta Green would not recruit somebody who had a penchant for reporting illegal activity and war crimes because that's like right, saying, but- that's like that's like saying, hey, hey there, hey there, Albert Tom Francis, why don't you come join my militia where we modify weapons for fully automatic fire? Uh, you know, we know that your history of dog shooting makes you a liability, but um, you know, as long as we don't start any unnatural fires. No, no. But if you're brought in and you're say and you're told, um, you know, that wasn't what you thought it was. Here's what it really is. Open your eyes, motherfucker. You know, it's a little bit different that way, I think. So uh, to back off slightly from the war crimes thing, I had another idea. In the Intercept story, they mentioned that a lot of these acts are 
typically done in response when U.S. servicemen are killed uh, fairly soon beforehand. Yeah, so I'm thinking uh, retaliatory. Yeah, every every time my Delta Green agent has has um, been on a mission where other agents have died, they've acted like that. It's good. That's in character. Is it? Is it? If it basically basically um you know how how uh, police officers are are um maybe not always but very often uh respond to cop killers in that way where that person is lucky yes. if they make it to processing uh Delta Green agents I think are probably very similar and not 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 least because so many of them are probably drawn from law enforcement and special operators. It's that good. Uh, we got to protect our own mentality, you know. Yeah, it's the it's the the source of their greatest strength and also their greatest weakness. You were talking about the retaliatory killings there, Tom? Yeah. Yeah, so that might be something like you were on a modern-day Operation Obsidian where you were on a mission that went wrong, like a hunting horror or something took down your helicopter and your best buddy died. And just the fact that you managed to comport yourself so well or you were one of the guys to make it back to base, that's enough to get you Delta Green's attention as someone who stays cool under fire. Isn't it like textbook uh, recruitment protocol? Yeah. Well, <laughs> so in my original conception of this is that it says the program sometimes deliberately organizes these missions where it will send out prospective recruits to face the unnatural and see how they do. So my thinking was your best buddy was the prospective recruit by Delta Green, but he got his ass killed on the mission. And because you survived, you were their consolation prize. I think that is that that to me feels like the the you when when you Tom say Delta Green shouldn't coerce people into joining it because then they are very, a liability. I think Delta Green should definitely not trick people into getting killed on missions because if I learn that Delta Green is fucking if I learn I learn that Delta Green is behind what I saw that day and all of my friends dying, I am going straight to the director's office and I'm shooting him in the head. I'm going to roll firearms certainly... until that building is a smoking cinder. Yeah, it works better as like a mid-campaign twist or something like, it turns out Delta Green is responsible for the most horrible day in your life when they've been lying to you all this time. It's not something the character should really start off knowing. That's that's helplessness right there, man. No, it's it's helplessness if I don't kill them all. It's violence if I do. Oh, okay. See, that's the other thing is that is that um, it's like it's like saying um, I can count it as deception if I tell him I'm not going to kill him. It's only helplessness if you don't roll to hit or you miss. This ties into our discussion that we had with um, with uh, Greg about uh, how it's it's harder to make helplessness um, a you know a good a good fit for RPGs than violence. But I think there is a lot of stuff that you could do with a special operator type character. Because one of the things about being a special operator is that you may be a tough legendary badass, but you're also government property, and you can be sent to kill and often die without really knowing that much about why. Especially in a Delta Green context, maybe less so in real life, but in Delta Green, that's that's kind of a feature of the setting. Yeah, I would think for a special operator, because you're likely taking that adapted violence package, helplessness is a really good avenue to explore with a special operator because. You've got the lower charisma, you don't have many bonds, and if you survive your missions, every time you're probably getting a Delta Green bond with somebody, which means you're losing even more from your existing bonds, and now you have a bunch of low-value bonds that you need to manage, or else you're losing 
you're not losing necessarily, but you're getting a sand roll for helplessness every time one of those bonds breaks. That's a good example of that downward spiral you can fall into because, you know, as your bonds go away, you, you're going to either get adapted to helplessness or you're just going to keep racking up disorders as your uh, yeah. teammates and your Delta Green, or sorry, your Delta Green teammates die. Yeah, exactly. Because it's only a 1d4 if the bond breaks and you fail to sand roll, but I forget what it is if your bond is killed right in front of you. It's pretty bad. I think it's a d6 at least. So we talked a little bit about uh, what what they do. We talked about the gear they do it with. We talked about how to play them. Do you guys have any other thoughts about special operators? Think about different ways that you can make a special operator who has other um, cool and useful skills rolled into them. Like um, Green Berets are the ones who are supposed to go in and like train you know train up the locals and work with them and so on so those are your guys who might have like anthropology or a special language skill or something or um uh one of the one of the swat professions in the book i think is fbi swat and uh or h or hrt or whatever um hostage rescue team not uh hormone replacement replacement therapy that we know of and uh they are um it's basically a special operator with some of the federal agent skills rolled in so they're like a, a combination as as kicking you know door kicking flashbang throwing uh but they also have the the federal agent skills but they only have one bond because they have all those special um stuff stacked on or uh the marine raider is a guy with um with federal agents with the special operative skills and um like nautical skills and then the uh this is the last one my Um, my favorite one's the u.s marshal special operations guy because he's kind of like the HRT guy, but um, he has the ability to kind of uh, recruit local cops to help him out, like look for people. So you have even more like a blade of armor in the form of, uh, you know, there's you could send a beat cop. So to he's he's like, he's like a he's like a, a green beret, but he um, they drop him into like Alabama instead of or, instead of a mountain Montag- Ch- Chicago, but yeah, instead of a mountain yard village. Um, he also has. Uh, Basically, all of his skills are over 50%, so it's pretty good, and he gets a lot of them uh, on top of all the gear. Yeah, uh, you, you guys, lis- listeners, you might be noticing that um, Special Operator is a character class that is um, often min-maxed because it has very high skills and a lot of starting equipment, which, as we've said, we should. it's not necessarily proper to think about it as starting equipment, but that's, a lot, that's the first place that a lot of people go with it. The downside is that it only has one bond. That's what some of the like the more specific ones in the back of the book have. Yeah, most of your of your um, and especially if you're running with adapted to violence, that means that you cannot withstand that much sanity damage. Your bond scores are that much lower. Yeah, bonds are much more important than people who have not played the game before or who are new to this game think. I have a difficulty in my Delta Green scenarios where an NPC falls into the player's hands and they do something that Sandy Peterson warned us about, which is that whenever you have an NPC in your game, the players are going to ask every possible question they can think of to that NPC about every piece of information that they've found so far, like you do in a point-and-click adventure game. You know, you exhaust every dialogue option that you can think of, and then some. And then Sandy Peterson warns us have a way to break off these interactions between the players and the NPCs so that this doesn't just go on forever. It's a Delta Green game, right? So usually the NPC that they're pressing for information, like seven times out of ten, 
They're going to be like in handcuffed. They're going to also be like they're, they're going to be beat to a bloody pulp or, you know, uh, so it's not like they can just get up and leave from the conversation, the NPC. Exactly. That's my problem is that um, the advice that the guy gives is that you should have a way out. But the whole point of capturing someone and interrogating them is that you prevent them from doing that. I guess we could split it up into two different ways, I guess, because there's one where it's an NPC that is not being detained and is free to leave. And then there's the NPC who is, uh, well, they're unable to leave of their own volition. Either they're handcuffed or they're bound or their legs are broken. So the first one's easier, though, I guess, if if you have an NPC that is voluntarily engaging with your uh, Delta Green agents, what are some ways you can break the conversations off? Well, I've had trouble with this because I found that typically if the players have like a huge stack of questions they want to ask an NPC and the NPC tries to get up and leave, then they rapidly try to turn that NPC into number two, someone who's handcuffed and can't leave. Right. There's the obvious route, which, you know, they can go like full sobsit. Like, who are you? What are you doing? Am I being detained? Am I free to leave? Why are you asking me these questions? I don't know what you're talking about. Which then causes the players to double down on arresting them or otherwise eliminating their freedom of movement. What are some ways that Sandy Peterson wrote about uh, having exits? Uh, He said that um, in his specific example, it was that you're talking to workers in a resort complex in a country that the native language is not one that you speak. So suddenly they don't understand English or they have a job to do or something. That's good. And then, you know, if your Delta Green agent happens to have foreign language, they can call them on their bluff. Or like overhear a conversation, like thinking, oh, this dumb Yankee doesn't speak our Trying language. to get out of it. I get out of this, not get back into it. That's true. But I, I, it's a chess game here. We're playing chess, Melon. I'm playing four-dimensional chess. My biggest thought was was that the NPC would try and overload the players with lies. Like, they would lie about silly things that are really obvious and aren't really relevant to the investigation. And they would kind of come so frequently that it would overload your human to your ability to suss out a lie. Uh, two NPCs stand before you. Uh, each one's blocking a path. One tells the truth. The other tells only lies. Well, it's sort of playing off... Uh, it's sort of playing off something you see in a lot of mystery TV shows where a character is lying and then the episode ends. Well, it's not necessarily that they're lying. It's like in a mystery TV show where somebody tells you one thing and then at the end of the episode they come back and reveal that they were lying and that you follow up on the next episode and it turns out the lie. It might give you a clue, but it might just be irrelevant. It's something to kind of fill up the episodes. Almost like a red herring or doesn't have to be a red herring, but some of them would be red herrings, I guess. I was watching an episode of The Unit a couple of days ago where they're going through uh, Seer School, which is like survival, evade, uh, resist, and, and electrolysis, escape. right? That's the last E? Yeah, the electrolysis. That's eventually, it always ends up in torture, but uh, they were interrogating and they're trying to separate members of this special operations group up and then try and get them to play like the prisoner's dilemma and like... Uh, lie or snitch or like fall prey to the enemy's tricks or whatever and they they've got this one guy and he's separated and they think that they're gonna get him to break and he starts you know all right well let me tell you about this operation i went on and then he starts recalling the plot to the dirty dozen to the to the interrogator 
and the interrogator is like falling for it. So I just thought that was a really clever lie because then like later on the interrogator found out that it was the plot of the Dirty Dozen and he came back and he was just like beating the shit out of him. But seeding a bunch of lies into NPC conversation, uh, that sounds awesome. It also sounds like a lot of work, so I'd want to prepare them beforehand. Yeah, there'd probably be, there'd have to be like a reason for the person to want to lie. Yes. Like maybe if they're a criminal already and there's a person who you think is a fed asking you questions. Uh, permit me to play devil's advocate for a moment, but is an NPC No, I don't who, permit this. Well, I'm the editor, so I am the one giving permission, so fuck you. Well, um, what if I edit this segment? I'll... Uh, then you got me. <laughs> I, Go I, ahead, play, play devil's advocate. I lost my ultimate power. Okay, um, to play devil's advocate for a moment, what is the difference between having an NPC lie to the players and send them off on a wild goose chase and a red herring? That is a good question. I guess, um, okay, so a red herring, What by, by definition, it, it leads literally nowhere, right? It'd be something like um, in the classic... Uh, Delta Green Adventure Artifact Zero, the one surviving archaeologist being randomly immune to Tillinghast radiation for no reason. And they don't really tell you any reason why? No. No, there's no way for the players to discover that that's why he's not embedded in prehistoric rock. There's no way the players can use that to develop an immunity or to save themselves. It's just, it's for no reason at all. I guess if you're going to have an NPC lie to the agents, like I said earlier, there should be a good reason. But like, what if the NPC lies and the agents go chase that angle? Like, oh yeah, you're going to want to go to the warehouse by the docks. And then like, you know, they leave him alone for a little while. That gives him a chance to escape, go alert somebody else that, uh, you know, hey, there's a bunch of feds looking for you. You know, you can jump up, you can jump them at the dock. That's good. I like that. And then what's the first thing that any group of players is going to want to do when they discover an NPC has lied to them? Uh, come back or go looking for them? Go looking for them. Tom, the other day you posted that thing in the Discord about the people who just like record the police and shit. So like what if they start whipping out their phone and doing that like live streaming like, look at these federal agents, they're giving me a hard time. Am I being detained? Or, you know, like it's and it's out there on the internet now, so. Yeah, these First Amendment auditors, these people who deliberately go out and provoke cops while filming it so they can put the videos on YouTube. And some of them, the name First Amendment Auditor is essentially they're trying to, I guess, capture police brutality on camera by trying to get themselves beat up. And for some of them, it genuinely is for, like, views and ad money and for the lulls. That wouldn't be the First Amendment, though. That would be... No, no, it is, it is because... Um... In a lot of in a lot of U.S. states, it's um, they try to pass laws against filming the police, and usually when people fight it, they do so on First Amendment grounds because there's a lot of jurisprudence that's come in um, around the First Amendment. So stuff like the implicit right to privacy, there's no actual explicit right, but it's considered an implicit right. As I think it's a First Amendment thing. Uh, Fourth Amendment is privacy, but they say that uh, that's the one I was thinking of. Fourth Amendment. I was about to say, wouldn't that be fourth? You know what? I'm I'm probably thinking of of a different case than you are. So that, I guess that's an idea. Is you get like uh, the person starts to fight back if they're trying to restrain them, but not like physically. You know, maybe they pull out their phone and start recording, or they start like FaceTiming with a friend or live streaming. What else you guys got? Um, I got I got a good one. So if the agents are interrogating somebody in a hostile, you know, circumstance, what if the NPC just just breaks down and starts like weeping and 
and pleading not to kill them. And, oh, God, oh, God, please don't shoot me. Oh, God, I don't know anything. Oh, God, help. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And just becomes completely inconsolable and so you, absolutely, you just wanna, utterly useless. You want to, like, annoy your players and the agents by uh, extension? One of two things will happen. One, the agents will realize they are badgering and innocent and will back off. Two, they will become so annoyed that they will sh- that they will shoot the NPC. No, no, either no, of no, those no, no, is gold. No, no. But here's the problem. There's number three, which is that they think we broke this guy, we're winning, and then they continue to they double down and yeah. So then they keep asking th- questions, then, then and then I ask, says, and the handler answers every question with this with like sobbing noises. And then then someone says, and hey, then we what, just, what just page keep going. The, what page of the agent's handbook is the torture rules on again? <laughs> That's fine, because the interrogator also has to roll sanity. Yeah, and then you also lose, like, uh, or you get adapted to violence, and that's bad. Well, here's the other fun thing, is that what somebody who is broken to torture will say anything to make it stop. That's true. Uh, torture is only reliable if the information you're seeking is immediately verifiable. I guess what I'm getting at is I would use this as an opportunity to give the players enough rope to hang themselves with. How do you send a strong signal to the players that badgering, continually badgering this person will get you nowhere? That you've got uh, stop giving stop giving them answers or continue to give them the same answer. If if Kevin were here, Kevin would say, "All right, let's all have a polite, grown-up discussion about this. Let's just pause. Let's take a break away. This guy doesn't have anything else for you guys, and I'm getting tired of of pantomiming and I'm getting tired of sobbing for you guys." Honestly, that's what I would do. I'm not above breaking the fourth wall and just and saying, uh, "You're not going to get you, you your your continued efforts to get information out of this NPC is fruitless." Do you guys remember iRobot? Uh, the Will Smith movie? Yes, the Will Smith movie. One of the conceits of that film is the the hollow recording of, I can't remember the name of the actor, he also played, um, uh, Zephyrin Cochran for Star Trek First Contact. The hologram has a limited set of programmed responses, and if you ask it a question for which it does not have a response, it will say, I'm sorry, my responses are limited. I did an Eclipse Phase game once where I did a take on that, and there was, uh, a limited delta fork of an NPC who... Like, there was a good couple of minutes where the guys I was playing, running the, the scenario for would ask it questions, and I would just answer, I'm sorry, I don't, I didn't program a response for that. And they just kept going, because they kept, I don't know, they kept forgetting that it was a limited copy or something. I don't know, I don't, but yeah, I forget where I was going with this, so I might cut no, that. No, you're right that an NPC is like that, where you can, you can limitlessly come up with endless fractal justifications for why they're behaving the way they are, or you can go the other direction and say, look, this is a fucking delivery guy, he knows about deliveries, he knows it's limited amount of information about each delivery. He doesn't know about the wizard spell. He doesn't know about the death cult. And frankly, I'm kind of puzzled as to why you grabbed him in the first place. If I had a lot of patience and the agents interrogated the delivery guy, I would lean into it and have him think it's some kind of like weird police sting or something. And he like... Are they hazing me? Or, or he, he cops to like selling drugs to some of the houses on his route or something. You know, uh, instead of, you know, breaking down the fourth wall, you could also just use the skills that exist in game for telling if somebody's lying or not. You know, like if, if there's a guy who's like, look, I don't, I don't know anything. There's, there's a skill for telling if someone's lying? What skill is that? Okay, well, the, the way that people use the skill is to determine if is, is wrong. Lying. That's but, not what human is. But there's psychotherapy, not psychosurgery. There's psychotherapy, the skill for telling if someone's lying? Wow. You, you could. I mean, there's nothing stopping you. I mean, other than the definition of words. I mean, is that really? Uh, honestly, everybody's always like- I mean, I know like, a lot about psychotherapy, but I, I, I don't think psychotherapy lets you tell if somebody's lying or not. No, that's everyone human. Is always like, uh, everyone's always no, like- No, it's not uh, human either. I roll human to see if he's lying. Might, 
allow you to figure out why someone is lying once you've determined through other means that they are lying. It might also confirm your your uh, your biases and let you reach the conclusion you've already decided that you wanted. Entirely possible, sure. Cough, Stanford Prison Experiment, cough, cough. Here's the, here's the text for human. Use human to recognize signs of dishonesty from verbal cues and body language, gauge attitude and intentions. So, like, you know, attitude. Uh, puzzled's a pretty common, you know, puzzled's an attitude. I don't know what the fuck these guys are asking me about. Do you know what my most common response to a human role is? Uh, no. That's, that's exactly it. Yeah, nothing. Just shrug. You're not sure one way or the other. Because it's not a lie detector. It will tell you if someone is sweating their balls off trying to lie to you, or it will tell you if someone is genuine. It might tell you if someone is genuinely confused. It's not going to tell you that somebody is a master liar. Unless, maybe, I don't know. Right. It should be a read of their current emotional state more than anything else. So there's a joke that we occasionally have at my IRL game table where people roll bluff or deceive or persuade or whatever the skill is to to say something completely implausible. And the joke response from the GM to the absurdly successful skill roll is, he believes that you believe it. But as Ross Payton pointed out to you, that is not how the skill is described in the rulebook. I remember this I remember this specific conversation where you said that you do this and he was like, "Well, that's fine except that that's not what the rules say about how that skill is used." I don't remember this conversation. Maybe it's because I lost. It doesn't look like anything to me. I mean, I think that you're right in that there's a there's a time and a place for using certain skills. What I'm, what I'm getting at is I wouldn't I I wouldn't let human be used as a lie detector. I would let it be used to generate clues like, you know, something seems off about this guy or he seems like he's high. I I use it as the Troy thing, you know. I I I sense deception, captain. He seems puzzled. Yeah, he seems puzzled. He's there's something he's not telling you. I also roll human rules out of line of sight of my players. Right. That's one of those skills that you should keep there are, it in. There like... are very few skills I do that for. That's one of them. Like alertness and human. But, um, Melon, you mentioned, you know, this is a delivery guy. He doesn't know shit about, like, the the wizard. But what if the person, what if the person that they're interrogating is the wizard? Because then you have a plethora of options for getting, uh, to, for breaking off this engagement in the form of hypergeometry. Um, infallible suggestion, fascination. I guess those are more like one-on-one things, though. There's really not like a group affecting spell, is there? Uh, isn't there like a mass version of Fascinate or am I thinking of something else? Well, you're thinking of like 5e where you can take any spell and then slap mass in Oh yeah, maybe, maybe I'm thinking of that. I think Obscure Memory allows you to spend extra willpower for every person present nearby and then allow your POW times 5 roll to affect all of them. You certainly could take one of the several spells for affecting the perceptions and actions of others and scale it up to affect a group of people. I mean, the, the rituals in the Handler's Guide are just frameworks. Right. Hey, there's nothing stopping you from doing whatever the fuck you want to do as a Handler. Especially since you have a rather comprehensive framework for how to do that with the ritual system. So that happened to me the other day um, when I had agents interrogating a guy. And, like, I, I was just so tired of, of having to make up answers or, like, make up lies and stuff. And so I was like, all right, he goes just, like, catatonic. He's not responding to you guys. And they're like, okay, we, we tie him up and we're going to chain him to this, this pipe in the bathroom. Oof. And I was like, okay, so who else, who else is doing what where? And then, like, they, they split up because, like, they figured he was, like, out of it. But then they put him on the pipe and he used infallible suggestion. Um, the role was done in secret, so... 
you know, it was never, no, never mind the fact that the guy who was chaining him to the pipe also slipped him a handcuff key. Nice. Infallible suggestion's a good one, man. What else we got for uh, breaking off conversations, whether it's voluntary or involuntary? I mean, using a spell on a player is essentially the character attacks you so they don't have to that, be Yeah, that is a anymore. declaration of war. Yeah, I guess it, it could end up with the... The stuff drawn, but you know what? They can't interrogate a dead man. It's true. It does end the solve the problem. Yes. Actually, you know, you know what would be funny though. I'm gonna do a riff on a popular TV show, and you'll spot it. So the agents are interrogating an NPC who knows whatever the spell is, mass fascinated or whatever, and he says, "Look, why don't we just calm down, discuss this rationally?" And then you jump to the agents are walking out of the building, saying, "Oh, I'm glad we resolved that." Wait, what the hell happened? But that does bring up like uh, the suicide by cop route. <laughs> Like, I don't want to be a part of this conversation anymore so badly. Like, I don't want to spill the beans, so I'm just going to provoke them into attacking me. There's 100% an NPC in The Last Policeman who does that in the second book. Yeah, you're right. He's, like, got his stupid drug um, scheme, and then for whatever reason, he gets the police to shoot him rather than give up the goods. I remember that. But, I mean, in The Last Policeman, there's a meteor headed towards the Earth, so it's not like everyone has... The most will to live. Yeah, he was a he was a, really. If he's in that world, he should have been the one to start shooting. It's it's true. I've got it's a good book. Five days left to live, and these fucking punks can think they can come over and roll me for my stash. Not bloody likely. Yeah, I'm gonna go out high out of my mind. And the fucking protagonist gave gives up his gun when the police chief fires him. That's a cold dead hand moment right there. If ever there was one, I'm gonna die the way I live, shooting you in the goddamn face. So. If you have, you know, your your traditional standard suicidal cultist that the players happen to be interrogating and they're pressing him for information. I mean, you know, if he dies, he gets to go be with Daloth or whatever. You get uh, 72 virgin Shoggoths in the uh, other plane that you go to when you die. I don't think I want to go to that plane. You don't want 72 virgin Shoggoths? Good job. Did Did I say Shoggoths? I don't know whether that is better or worse than the alternative. What's what's the alternative? To 72 virgin Shoggoths? Wait, 72 sexually experienced Shoggoths. Yeah, I'm not sure which of those is better or worse. The experienced Shoggoth, 100 fucking percent of the time. Wait, I, I've seen enough hint. I don't know no, where this no, is no, going. No, 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 I don't. I've I don't, seen enough heresy to know where I this is going. I am not going to sit, I'm not going to sit there and tell 72 blobs of Elder Thing Pyco technology how to fuck, Okay. That's not a risk I'm willing to take. If I'm going to be in that situation, they need to be already 100% like knowing how that works. Because otherwise, that situation just gets ugly real fast. They got to be the ones teaching me the, the good shit. Otherwise, that's not, that's not an afterlife I'm interested in. So, um, do we have any other cool puzzles for how to... Because I like that, just like the cultist doesn't give a shit and is willing to be killed for his uh, gad. I guess... That Delta Green, as intended and as written by some of the publishers, uh, is meant to be a place for consequences in the game. Because otherwise, why would they have rules for, like, getting in trouble at work or, you know, having to go to jail? So, you know, if they are holding someone against their will that they don't have a reason to, a lot of the times people aren't going to react positively to that. So play up the consequences angle, like I said People do tend to react negatively to being unjustly imprisoned and or interrogated. Yeah, am I being detained? Yeah. Yeah, just live stream the fact that you're being held against your will by these obvious federal agents. That's good, actually. That's good. We didn't really talk about bringing in uh, another NPC to interrupt the interrogation. Oh, that's good. 
Ooh. Yeah, the more I'd... the more time they spend on b- dumb bullshit, the more time everyone else has to enact their schemes. It's true, yeah. Their their interrogation is interrupted by the sound of Azathoth waking. Or gunfire through the wall. Or that. Yeah, the uh, the Michael Bay solution. A su- something explodes. Yeah, I was going to say, that's Raymond Chandler. Like, when you run out of things to do, just have a guy walk through the door with a gun. Or a magic gun. I'm the guy with the gun. That's me. What if you're already in the room? With a, that, that's when it. When in doubt, Melon Bread walks through the door. What, bring Melon Bread to your table. Exactly. Oh, my God. Because if he's getting bored with an interrogation, then... Um, bad things are about to happen to the NPCs. All right, hey, can someone tell me the torture rules where they are again? Mel- Melon's about to get s- some answers from these Delta Green agents, and the questions are nine millimeters in diameter. No, 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 no. I'm not even going into that room. My, the grenade's my friend, and because he's my friend, he goes into the room first. <laughs> um, but the torture rules are uh, a post-persuade test. Persuader gets a plus 20 target gets a neg 20 the intelligence can be completely random essentially because it says in the book that it's up to the handler to decide whether the information is um, useful or not and one thing i think that jake you and i have talked about before maybe just maybe just me or maybe just you because i know i've seen you mention it but i've also heard this that um it works okay on things that you can immediately verify if you want to know the password to a laptop, you can verify that very quickly. But if you don't have a way of verifying the information, then torturing someone isn't that useful because by the time you figure out whether they were telling the truth, it's already too late. Yeah, it's um, it's what I said earlier. It and uh, Will, you said that uh, to end torture, somebody's just going to tell you what they think uh, they want you to hear. Yes. Which, incidentally, segue. Um, some there there are those who have raised. Uh, confusion with respect to the torture rules and why is it a persuade rule well as the torturee you are willing to persuade the torturer that you are being truthful have you guys used the torture rules in your games before honestly it's never come up i've been i've been i kind of wish some of my players would use the torture rules because that at least would mean that they're not gunning down npcs i've definitely used them before as a player when i was getting too frustrated with npcs not telling me anything in the scenario not going anywhere i just said you know what my guy is adapted to violence he doesn't give a fuck anymore he's just about to start hitting things to see what falls out let's find the nearest shipping container that was also agent steven agent steven is generally very badly behaved when it comes to npcs i i wrote a whole scenario around the torture rules actually did you now yeah it was based on the uh samuel jackson carrie ann moss movie called unthinkable so like in the movie there's a terrorist who's planted three bombs in major they're nuclear bombs in major american cities and he's issued out like videos to the fbi and stuff and they have them in their custody but like the videos are like you know today's tuesday on friday these bombs are going to go and so it's about like how far they're going to push him before he can you know crack and Samuel Jackson is like the adapted to violence guy. You know, he goes in and he just like fucking chops the guy's like finger off, like straight off the bat, just about. It's a really good movie. I'd, I'd recommend it. Um, but I wrote a scenario where it was like you guys, you start with basically three. Uh, they're almost like ISIS death cult guys in your uh, in your custody. So not very sympathetic then. Right. And then, you know, uh, there's a variety of tools that are available for you to use. You're here because the last guy that was interrogating slash torturing them uh, lost his goddamn mind in the middle of the interrogation, and we don't know why. And then, like, you play the video back, and he just <laughs> starts, like, like, get out of my head. Get the fuck out of my head, you know? Get like, out of my head, Charles. It's because the um, the the detainees – this is a bit of a spoiler for this scenario. Um, the detainees – the detainees have, like, a telepathic thing, so 
it just became like a mental mercy game back and forth, uh, going back and forth about, you know, they're asking the questions. And and it used the, the torture rules because it says it like takes a couple of hours for you to work somebody for, you know, the information you're looking to get. Can I be a thousand percent honest? Yeah, what's up? If someone wants to torture an NPC in my game, I'm not going to bother with any persuade tests. <laughs> I'm going to roll luck in secret to decide whether or not he feeds you bullshit. No, no, you roll luck in secret and let them go through the rolls anyway. They just don't mean anything. Yeah, that's good. You know, come to think of it, I have actually had a play group that used the torture rules, and Jake, you were there for that. Wait, I, was I doing the torturing? Because I feel like I might have done it. I don't it. think so, but you were there. Uh, it was when I ran a mind is a terrible thing to waste at Gen Con last year. Oh, yeah, and you you, you tortured the one NPC that didn't know no, 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 anything. No, 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 hold on, and they hold were, on. They were hold strapped on. Let me, to let me, an let ambulance me, let, me do the, let me do the thing, let me do the thing. Okay, so so they decide they're going to use the torture rules, so they get the uh, the, the medic to prep uh, to prep uh, Agent, um, what was her code name? It's Elizabeth and the Thing, but it's... Yeah, so to, to prep Agent Elizabeth with, like, truth serum or whatever, with drugs, right? And that they almost kill her. Okay, that's funny because And then they abort the torture. <laughs> in in my game they did the the pharmacy torture out as well, but they made the guy OD and then they brought him back to life with first aid. <laughs> <laughs> so it went swimmingly for them. <laughs> there was a thread on the Eclipse Phase forums where this guy was like, My players want to like torture NPC this NPC for whatever reason and he was like, No, I can't I can't they can't use psychosurgery because none of them have that skill. Never and you know, we're not gonna go into how you get a skill in Eclipse Phase without having it. Um Can't you have someone psychosurgery the psychosurgery skill into yourself? I've never played the game, so I don't know. Lack of psychosurgery is indeed a, th- a thing you can fix with psychosurgery. But at the end of the like this long winded post he was like, um I don't believe torture works and it doesn't work in my game and like I was like, what? Then why are you asking this question? If 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 you have created a game world where it explicitly does not work, that's something you need to fucking tell the players, and it'll solve this whole problem. Because if if they're base, basing it on the on whether or not it works on like the real world situation, which is maybe, then that's very different from you explicitly saying when I run this game it doesn't work. Because if you have that information and you don't want them to do it. Just fucking tell them that. But Melon, why should I have to tell my players what all my assumptions and premises for this game are? Why can't they just know them without me having to communicate I mean, with them? One hundred percent real talk. That's usually how I feel. Is why can't everyone just already know the exact thing I want them to do? But sadly, we don't live in that world where um, it's all just shadows on the wall of Melon Bread's cave. So well, we could we could live in that world, Melon. With psychosurgery. That's where I was going with this, with the Plato's cave <laughs> metaphor, is that I'm the sun, and psychosurgery is like the false shadows that um, I cast on the wall. And the real cave is the friends you made along the That's way. That's true, and I made them with psychosurgery. But in the meantime, <laughs> um, I feel like- That's a good end right there. <laughs> uh, yeah, we kind of drilled down to the-, to the what, it, what is it he says in Renegade Angel? Uh, we've, we've whittled this rhetorically to the nub of its bare meaning- uh, does anyone else have any parting thoughts on talking to NPCs, or should we go on to the next item? I think you should never talk to NPCs. That is just don't an excellent strategy. It's like talking to strangers when you're a little kid. They just wanna they just wanna give you candy and put you in the van. No, don't don't talk to NPCs. Let the guns do the talking. Thanks for listening to the Green Box. In the episode description, you'll find links to our social media as well as the United the Opera subreddit and Discord. We like to hang out, play games, talk all things Delta Green. Until next time, keep your eyes to the skies, stay frosty.